0: wish you a very happy new year at the start of this new year, at the start of a new decade already being dubbed the teenies um, instead of the noughties that we've left behind. And at the beginning of this new decade I think it's a time when often we look back and see where God has brought us from and where we anticipate that God might take us to. At the start of a new decade, we think in bigger terms. we think in longer terms, more than just a, a new year, but a greater span of time in which God might do greater and more wonderful things if we will but commit ourselves more fully to Him. Will you read with me from God's word. From Second Chronicles, please, Second Chronicles and chapter six. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 440. Second Chronicles not the most well thumbed book in our bible i guess perhaps owing to the fact that it opens with several chapters of genealogy so and so begat so and so begat so and so begat so and so and a list of names that we've never heard of and that we probably will never call our children uh, so not a book that you might often turn to but this morning we look at second chronicles chapter 6, and we'll begin to read at verse 12. I'm going to read down through the chapter. I may skip a few verses. Follow with me if you will. I'll try to keep you aright as we follow down the verse numbers. Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide and three cubits high and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Verse 18. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. Verse 21. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor, verse 23, hear from heaven and act. Verse 24, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy, when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven. And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Verse 28, when famine or plague comes to the land. Verse 29, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains and spreading out his hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of men so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land that you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Verse 34, when your people go to war against their enemies, when they pray to you towards this city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, For there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them. Verse 39. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Verse 11 When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is the word of the Lord let's pray and ask him to bless it to us as we consider it this morning. Father God, we thank you that you are the eternal God of the ages. We thank you that you are the God of history who works in the nations of the world to achieve your eternal purposes. And that in these nations, you have called out a people for yourself, a people called by your name, a people who know their God, And yet, Lord, as we look at the lessons of history, we understand that even that people are often a wayward people. And this morning we have already confessed our shortcomings before you as your people in this place and in this city and in this nation. And we ask you, Lord, to speak again through your word that we might understand our waywardness that we might turn again in repentance to you, that we might call upon your name and that you as the God of heaven might hear our prayer, might forgive our sin, might heal our lives and might heal our land. We pray these things for your greater glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I used to love getting a new jotter at school I don't know if you can identify with that A new jotter, a new exercise book Was always a special occasion Opening that new jotter, do you remember it? And writing on the first page A blank page Nothing written on the page And an opportunity for you in all your Precise and best handwriting to write the date, and to put if you were a school uh, a school pupil from from my era to put a margin there as the teacher often taught you, and to write at the top what the subject was for today, whether it was mathematics. Do you remember these square ones that you got for mathematics? And you made sure all the boxes fitted with the numbers, and and that first page of your jotter was was pristine it was excellent it was a fantastic experience because the messy jotter that you had left behind was forgotten it was no longer required and the kisses that the teacher used to always put on your (laughs) jotter were forgotten too and here was a new chance to be the perfect pupil to be excellent Once again, here was the adventurous future of new learning. Here was the opportunity to get it right, at least for the first page anyway. And it was an opportunity for us then to branch out and to launch out into a new era of learning. An old era gone past and a new era being offered to us. And as we stand at the beginning of a new year and a new decade, there's a sense in which we too have a new jotter today. An open page, an opportunity to write afresh the lessons that we have learned from the past and how we need to learn them. What are we going to make of the new jotter that we've been given in 2010? The book of Chronicles, from which we have read extensively this morning, is, as I've said, not a well-read book in terms of Bible books. But it is a book that was important in an ancient era, an era that was set probably some almost 3,000 years ago, at least 2,500 years ago. A time when the people of Israel found themselves in exile chased out of the land which god had promised to them a people who had learned hard lessons in their spiritual walk a people who had often deserted the way that god had made clear to them a people who had reaped the consequences of that and found themselves in a foreign land a land marked with tears a land marked with regret a land marked by a desire once again to return to the ways of the Lord. And as the chronicler writes the history that he does in First and Second Chronicles, which was probably originally one book, he writes at a time at the end of Old Testament history when the people of God are about to come out of exile and come back into the land under God's gracious provision for them once again. And he says to them, in effect, let's learn some lessons from our history. Let's learn some lessons from that old jotter which we spoiled so often. Let's write afresh a new page in our history. The chronicler is concerned to learn lessons particularly from the era of David and of Solomon. He's looking back to the time in the ancient people of Israel's history when they were most blessed, as it were. And when the kingdom was established, when they were in the land, and when God was pouring out abundant blessing upon his people. He focuses on perhaps the greatest highlight of that era when Solomon built the temple that David had desired to build And God appeared amongst his people and he dwelt with his people as he had promised to do. An astonishing event. An event that could be seen as the highlight of all of Old Testament history. As God comes and dwells amongst his people. And the chronicler is at pains. To detail for this exiled people before they go back to Israel, what exactly were the conditions upon which the Lord agreed to dwell amongst his people? What were the conditions that we were able to meet that saw God's greatest blessing in these days of our past history? And the preacher, the chronicler, is applying these lessons to the people of God in his day so that they might understand God's greater purposes. As we come to chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Chronicles, where we read today, we have heard the story relayed by the chronicler of the construction of the temple in all its glory and splendor. But in chapter 6 particularly, we hear Solomon's prayer As he cries out to God and calls upon him to come and to dwell in this meager temple which has been made by the hands of men, he recognizes that it cannot contain the Almighty, the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. But would he deign to come? Would he deign to stoop down and be among his people once again? And Solomon's prayer in chapter 6 that I read so extensively from calls out for us to address it again, to look at it again. Let me encourage you to do that in your own time. A prayer of intercession. A prayer crying out and calling out on the behalf of others. On the behalf of individuals, if you look at it. On the behalf of a nation, if you will look at it on the behalf of an international scene that God may pour out blessing and how we long for that kind of thing today in our own land some people may want to write off this prayer and maybe write off this whole segment of Old Testament history and say well it it applied to Israel this was a promise given to Israel it's not something for us today and yet I would want to challenge that view I would want to challenge it because so often in New Testament, the people of God are referred to as the true Israel of God. We hear that we are a people who have been identified, who have been called out from amongst the nations. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ are in some sense that people. And while there may be aspects of this prayer that will be applied to geographical boundaries and this kind of thing, all of that can be understood afresh can be understood afresh in terms of spiritual lessons that we must learn walking in the footsteps of the Israelites of old is this not what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things have been written so that we might learn from them and so we come again to that history to that ancient history of a people of long ago that we might learn from them Look at the focus of that prayer, a focus calling upon God to keep his promises, a promise made to David, a promise made to the line of David. We can learn to call upon God and uh, and his promises, a call to see God come and dwell amongst his people. Do we not desire that thing today? That we might evidence his presence amongst us as individuals and as a congregation, as a nation. That the God of heaven may dwell amongst the people of Israel. And in chapter 7, where we will focus our thoughts this morning, particularly these verses from verse 13 down to verse 14, we hear God's gracious answer to Solomon's prayer. And what an answer it is God hears prayer God answers prayer and as Paul has reminded us this morning already we are so often doubtful about that aren't we in our modern age in our technological era we are so easily skeptical And yet this is the lesson of history. That God is the God who answers prayer. The true Israel of God, when they cry to Him, will see Him answering prayer. Fulfilling His promise. What did we read there? A promise that was made by God's mouth. And a promise fulfilled by God's mighty hand. Here is the God that we cry to. A God of action, not a silent God. And as we look at the matters of defeat and drought and famine and the things that have been mentioned in Old Testament history, we look around our nation today and we see these things, perhaps not in a physical way, but surely we see them in a spiritual way. We see a land that is marked by drought, spiritual drought, We see a land that is marked by spiritual famine. We discover that when we actually open up God's word with certain individuals, they are hungry for God's word. They have a desire to devour it and to understand it because it is food for the soul. And there is a dearth of such food around today in the land of Scotland. We need to understand that the society of Solomon's Day is not so dissimilar to ours we read about people who wrong their neighbor in Solomon's prayer we read about change in the climate in Solomon's prayer we read about world hunger in Solomon's prayer we read about cosmopolitan societies we read about war we read about sin we read about the unexplained questions concerning God himself so many things from Solomon's day are directly applicable to where we are today as in as much as the people of Israel then were facing a new future at this time in 2010 we too are facing a new future where are you going in this next year where am I going where are we as a congregation going in this next year indeed in this next decade where will Charlotte Chapel be in 2020 where will the word of God be in the land of Scotland in 2020 how might we be assured of God's forgiveness for the way we've got things wrong and the way we've gone astray How might we be assured of God hearing our prayers? How might we be able to bring God's healing into our lives and into the the life of our nation? How might we as the people of God learn from our past and rewrite the pages of history afresh in that new daughter that metaphorically lies before us at the start of this new period of time? How might we once again experience the dwelling of God with men? The daily experience of walking with him every day and he with us. Well, as we come to these verses in Second Chronicles, we hear the preacher from of old, the chronicler, explain to us how we might be able to answer these questions and others like them. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 13 begin with remarkable words. Words which take us aback. Words which we would never like to be heard on the streets of Edinburgh. For God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, so when I command locusts to devour the land, when I send a plague Among my people. Is this really God speaking? Does God do such things? Does God act in such ways? The chronicler sees God for who he really is the sovereign God of the nations. The sovereign one who is in control of all things. The one who is the creator of the ends of the earth. The one who created the heavens. I was reading the other day the story from Genesis chapter 1. And in a throwaway line, Moses writes, And he made the stars also. This is the God who acts in controlling all of the universe controlling the events of the world the one who is enthroned in heaven and according to Psalm 2 laughs indeed scoffs at the attempts of men to control their world Copenhagen 2009 how many people had great hope for that conference Gordon Brown announcing his plan to save the world ends up in disagreement and disarray and they leave and the Lord mocks and he scoffs for he is the one who is in control and how we forget it you see in all matters God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts and it's time for us to view afresh and to understand afresh the events of our lives and the events of our world through the eyes of a sovereign God who controls all of these things, who sees his plans and his purposes being executed in them all. How we make excuses for God, don't we? This happens all the time. Some disaster happens. Some tsunami wipes out hundreds of people. Famine strikes in East Africa, whatever it may be. And we're making excuses for him. We're almost apologizing for him. Why why do we take such a view? Is our God impotent to act? Or is he still the God who is on the throne, the one enthroned in heaven? How we proudly point the finger at God and blame him. We shake our fist in his face in anger because of the events of life which disturb us. And we've forgotten who God is. We have too small a view of God. We need to understand again how great He is. You see, God's desire through these actions of His is nothing less than to bring back to himself a people who have turned their back upon him, a people who have strayed from him. This is seen perhaps most obviously in the story of Gomer and, and Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is a prophet who is seen to be like God in his behavior, for he takes an adulterous wife, Gomer, who continuously goes astray and turns her back upon God, upon her husband. And from the East African context, we see this so evidently. The beautiful illustration, I think it's in chapter 2, where God, in the position of, of Hosea, takes thorn bushes and blocks the little roots leaving from the house in which Gomer and Hosea have lived so that Gomer might not run off in another direction to seek another husband to seek another lover and God puts thorn bushes in the way you know what thorn bushes do? we don't have too many of them in Scotland maybe a bit of gorse here and there but thorn bushes in Africa are nasty they rip at your skin they tear you they tear at your flesh they cause blood to run They cause pain. Why? In order that Gomer might return and be faithful. And this is what God desires of us. When I shut up the heavens, when I cause a plague, when I bring such disaster into your lives, what is your response going to be? In chapter chapter 7, verse 14, God calls us to make a proper response. If my people, he says, who are called by my name. You see, God is a God of promise, a God of faithfulness, a God who, when he makes his promises, will always be faithful to them. There are conditions which are being laid out for us here, which will bring certain results, for God will not deny himself. He will not deny his word and his promises made to us are sure and certain. He is a faithful God. In Moshe, we used to have a wall hanging in our bedroom. It was a picture of the ark, Noah's ark, with a lovely little rainbow, hand-stitched, beautiful thing. And it just said, God always keeps his promises. And in 2010, God is still the God who keeps his promises. Do you believe that? Do you hold on to his promises? Will you hold him to his promises? Will you meet the conditions that he has asked of you that he might be able to keep these promises? Perhaps my favorite verse, my life verse perhaps, Numbers 23 verse 19 and 20. For God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? He promises and he will fulfill. I have received a command to bless and he will bless and I cannot change it. There's the sovereign God of the universe at work. No one and nothing can stand in his way. What are these responsibilities then? Let's look at them briefly. Four responsibilities on our part. Humble themselves. If my people will humble themselves. And pray. Responsibility number two. And seek my face. Responsibility number three. And turn from their wicked ways. Number four. Then I will hear then I will act this is what the Lord tells us through his word and we must take up these responsibilities as the people of God we must make them our own we must act on these responsibilities humble themselves here is the first thing for you to do in light of all I've said this morning about God's sovereignty and God's control what is your response Perhaps in your heart you balk at the ideas that I've mentioned. Perhaps in our rebellious spirit we continue to say, that's a bit over the top. That's a bit ridiculous. But here is the very first call to us. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord God. And he will raise you up, says James. James. Will the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? Why have you done this to me? Oh, we forget our place so quickly. Should we not say, or instead of why did God do this, should we not say, Lord, I see that I have left your way. I see that I have turn my back on you I see that I've not acknowledged you for who you really are I see that I've made you too small and I've made myself too big humble yourselves humility is when we rightly understand who God is and who we are humility before God recognizes that he is the great creator and We are but the work of his hands creatures His creation Pride of course is the opposite of humility Pride says I don't need you God Pride says I can do it my way. I can manage pride makes us God pride is idolatry humble yourselves acknowledge God to be who he is and pray it seems that these two are inextricably linked for to pray is to acknowledge your own inability Perhaps that's why we pray so little in the West. I'll tell you something. I had to go to Africa to learn how to pray. I had to go as a missionary to Africa to learn how to pray. Because we have everything here, we have more than enough. We don't need God. We've forgotten God. God's a convenience perhaps on a Sunday or perhaps in a crisis. But in everyday life, in in every experience of life, prayer, you see, is that humble request before God that says, I beg of you, would you do this for me? Do you, do you remember? I guess even I'm not old enough to remember the old English that said, "I pray that you would do something," but that's where that word comes from. It's a begging. It's a it's a it's a humble request. Would you please, 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 do this for me? I pray. And how we've forgotten to pray. Here is a cry for God's mercy, a cry for God's grace. It's like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 Lord be merciful to me a sinner prayer is that expressing of our utter dependence upon God in all things do you depend upon God every day do you depend upon God for your work for your relationships do you depend upon God in raising your children in being a good parent in being a faithful husband do you depend upon God or are you self-sufficient if my people will humble themselves and pray? see prayer is not just religious postulating, it's not a gesture, it's not performance. it's an expression of our need. and we need to, ref- to, to understand afresh. How much we need God in these days. How much we need him in this land. Intercessory prayer brings special needs before God. Yeah, we've read about drought and plague and disease. But what special needs might we as the people of God be able to bring before him on the behalf of others? We've thought about some this morning as Paul led us in intercessory prayer for others who are involved in mission around the world but what about here in Scotland what about in our own congregation what about the needs of our schools what about the needs of our teachers what about the needs of our politicians how we need to pray for individuals, for the nation for an international scene and seek my face if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. In Numbers chapter 6 verse 24. We read what is known as the ironic blessing. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. And be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. And give thee peace. I'm sure these words are familiar to most of you. The people of ancient Israel saw God's blessing at its greatest when they had opportunity to see God's face. It was perhaps epitomized in their leader Moses as he moves into God's presence. And we read in the Old Testament that he speaks with the Lord as a man speaks with his friend face to face. And the result of that is that he comes from the presence of God shining, beaming. And he had to put a veil over his face because of the glory of God that was reflected in his face. On another occasion, you'll remember that Moses went to the mountain in Exodus 33 and he asked of the Lord that he might see his face. The Lord said to him, no one can see my face and live. But tell you what, I'm going to make a cleft in the rock here and I'm going to put you in that cleft and I'm going to cover you in the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, you will see me from behind. You will see me as it were in outline in profile and as he does that as he reveals himself to Moses he proclaims his name before Moses who he is, the great God the sovereign Lord the Lord whose love extends from generation to generation who is slow to anger and abounding in love And here is the chronicler saying to us once again, here is the desire that we must build in our hearts to seek God's face, to seek his greatest blessing, to come into the most intimate and closest relationship with God that we might ever be able to seek, to desire that with all our hearts as Moses desired it, as he desired that blessing. That was being pronounced upon the people by the Aaronic priesthood. So the chronicler announces again yes, seek his face, seek his face, seek a deeper walk with the Lord in 2010. It was a personal encounter for Moses on the mountain, no one else present, just him and the Lord. It was a moment of revelation for him when he saw it, when he understood it, when he knew who the Lord was and what he was going to do. It was an intimate relationship. And God wants that for you and for me too. He wants us to seek him, to seek after him, to seek his face. Jeremiah 29 verse 12 Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And for us, we have yet that opportunity to come into personal relationship with the Lord God because there was a cleft made within the person of the Godhead at the cross of Calvary so that we might find a place to hide so that we might find a place of shelter so that we might look from that cross and say yes the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Here is the intimacy of the relationship into which God wants to bring us. We finish with this fourth condition and turn from their wicked ways. All sin is idolatry. Idolatry is putting anything before God, anything. Whether it's our spouse, whether it's our work, whether it's our family, whether it's material things, no matter what it is. Anything that you put before God results in idolatry. And sin is idolatry. And here in this final clause, the chronicler is calling us to repentance. He's calling us to turn away from all that blocks our relationship with God he's calling us to turn afresh to seek God's face to pray to him to humble ourselves before him he wants to see us turning to God turning to God God is never far away from us and when he seems far away it's because we have turned our back on him It's an old hymn, but it's true nevertheless. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. You may be surprised that me quoting such a hymn We're a respectable congregation here. We've been walking with the Lord for for so many years. We are the people of God. Yeah. And so were the Israelites. And yet the chronicler called them to repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that you need God. Acknowledge that you need this fresh revelation of himself as you seek his face and as he reveals himself to you. God makes great promises to those who will take this position. And we have no time to look at them in detail, but hold on to them for 2010. I will hear from heaven this is restored communication this is this is a cell phone with a direct line to the throne room of heaven this is a connection with all the power of the godhead available for you to call upon i will hear from heaven what else does he say i Will forgive. Maybe you've messed up big time. Maybe you've got it wrong again and again and again. Maybe you think there's no way back. Maybe you think that issue that bothers you in your life, your Christian life, can never be dealt with. Oh, it can. And here at the beginning of 2010 is when it can be done. I will forgive, says the Lord. I will forgive. What a promise. Will you hold God to his promises? Forgiveness for moral failure is available today. I will heal their land. May it be so. May it be so in this decade to come that God would heal our land the land of Scotland that he would bring relief from judgment for it is all too obvious that his wrath is being poured out against all the godlessness and wickedness of men may God give us grace to deal with the matters that we can deal with that we would humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face And turn from our wicked ways. And let's see that God is the God of the ages who will still do what he has promised to do, even in 2010. Let's pray.